Yes. So the, the YouTube feed is going to be higher quality than the, uh, than the Facebook feed. Um, and part of the reason for the Facebook feed, and I'll put this out as an announcement so that our people know it as well, is it appears as though uh, probably around the fourth Sunday of August, we're going to be partnering with um, Indian River Baptist Church in Philadelphia, New York. Their pastor is a soldier who is in his uh, reserves and his unit's been activated. So he's going to be out of uh, the church for about six months. And so they asked if we could help. So we're going to experiment actually taking our service and putting it through YouTube, uh, Facebook Live, because they stream their services on Facebook Live. So their people, hopefully we're going to be able to connect so that they have their Facebook Live stream and then invite us into theirs. So anybody who's remote on theirs can uh, actually be a part of the service and have our teaching with their service. And then they're going to be taking our YouTube feed and putting it up on their screen on Sunday morning for the teaching. But uh, hopefully at least once a month, David or I or both of us will be going to Indian River Baptist Church and going live from there and then streaming to the screen here so you guys can experience what they're experiencing. So we're going to take technology and we're going to see if we can use it uh, to invest in, the, in, in God's kingdom and his churches as a whole um, by providing support for churches that, uh, that need it. And so they're excited about having continuous teaching um, and not trying to have a new speaker every week while they try to find somebody that can cover while their pastor is gone. And we're excited to get to know them a little bit better and to partner with them. So in some ways, it reminds me of what we experienced with Long Falls Church, where they came and were a part of our service here. Only this time, it's going to be a little bit more satellite and, and we'll be going back and forth a little bit and there'll be some screens involved. So we're really excited about the possibility of, of that. It looks like it's going to happen, and we're excited to partner with them and be a blessing to them in that way. So if you would like to be a part of that ministry and help with the logistics of it, just let me or David know. We'd love to get you plugged in to that. Um, other than that, I think that's all of the announcements of the First John study. Uh, this is the last week that we have for the First John study, so finish up the chapter, um, and I think that that's, that's it. So. Great. Why don't we start with a word of prayer, and then we'll spend some time in God's word. Father, we are so grateful for your love, for your mercy, for your grace. Thank you for this time to gather, whether in person or virtually, and to spend time thinking about you, your awesomeness, your amazing work of changing lives. Thank you for this time that we've looked at uh, in the message of Malachi. Father, we know that these messages are meant to, to convict and to pierce, and so I pray that as we spend time looking at your word today that you would do just that, that you would make it uncomfortable for us and show us uh, where we need to change to be in line with your heart. Father, remind us of who you are, of what you do, and of how we can honor and glorify you in this life, we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Malachi. Book of Malachi in the Old Testament, chapter 2, verse 17. Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 17. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament before you hit Matthew. So if you're like not sure where it is, find the Gospel of Matthew, go back just a little bit. Um, it's the, the last in our Bibles. It's the last book of the Old Testament. Um, so in, in the 66 books that we have. As we stated in the beginning of our study of Malachi, um, this is an oracle of Malachi. So this is like the words, the oracle of Malachi, and it can be broken down into six different disputes. So six different arguments that take place between God and the prophet and the prophets, the mouthpiece to the people. So it's this, these arguments back and forth between God and the people. And Malachi is like the arbiter of that. Uh, he's in the middle. And the first dispute was that the Israelites were questioning whether or not God loved them. Have you ever questioned whether God loves you? Have you ever questioned the love of God or felt like you just weren't sure that he really loved you because of circumstances in your life? That's how the Jews were. They were exiles. They were kicked out of their homeland. Everything that they had worked for was gone. Their temple was destroyed and rebuilt. And even when it was rebuilt, it was not like it was before. It was, it was not the same glory that it was when Solomon built it. And so they question, does God even love me? And the answer is, of course he does. You're still here, aren't you? Um, 
I think sometimes as parents, I want to say that to my kid. I wanted to say that to my kids. Like, you know, they feel like, ah, you don't love me. Well, of course I am. You're still alive, aren't you? I mean, haven't you ever felt like that as a parent, you know, with your kids? So some of you are like, yep, yep, every week. So God's love was real and manifest in the fact that the Jews were still there. The second um, dispute was when God called out the religious leaders, the Levites, the tribe that was set aside just to serve God. Now, the Levites, they didn't have any land. They were the only tribe that didn't have land. Their entire job was to serve God in the temple. So they only got paid if people gave to the temple. They only survived if people did what they were supposed to do. And their only task was to serve God. And they found it a chore. Not only that, they were like sacrificing like lame animals and sick animals and blind animals, even stolen animals. Like there were people that were stealing animals and offering them as sacrifices. And the Levites were like, okay, it's fine. And so God called them out and said, listen, you, you've lost sight of what you're supposed to do. And you need to get back on track. You need to honor God and make sure that you're being an example to the believers, example to the children of God. That was the second dispute. The third dispute had to do with the Israelites kind of just being terrible about relationships. Just horrible. Like the Jewish men were divorcing their Jewish wives so they could marry foreign wives. It's horrible. They just got, I guess I got bored or something. I don't know. And then on top of that, they started worshiping the idols that their foreign wives brought in to the relationship with them. So they had abandoned their covenant with their wives and they had abandoned their covenant with God. So God called them out on that one. These are three hard messages, and they hit home about our relationship with God. How do we perceive God's love in our lives? Do we do we take the lens of our circumstances tell us what God really how God really loves, or does our theology tell us about God's love, and we ignore the circumstances? So it's really an important one for us to wrestle with. It it makes us wrestle with the concept of how are we living for God? Are we giving Him our best? Are we sad about the fact that we have to serve Him? Does it make us like tired and weary to think about that. Do we honor God in our marriages? Do we understand it as a gift and as a picture of his relationship with us? These are hard messages that every one of us as followers of God have to wrestle with. And this morning, it's going to get tough again. Um, We're going to look at the fourth dispute. And it's in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. And it says this, You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you ask, how have we wearied him? Well, when you say everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and he's delighted with them, or else you say, where is the God of justice? Well, see, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's bleach. He'll be like a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. They will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as they did in days of old in the years gone by. I will come to you in judgment. And I will be ready to witness against the sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, the widow and the fatherless, and against those who deny justice to the resident alien. They do not fear me, says the Lord of armies. So the next dispute, the next charge is you have wearied God with your words. You have wearied God. Now, the word weary is kind of an interesting word, right? How many of you, what do you think of when you think of the word weary? Exhausted, right? Tired, worn out. You have tired God out with your words. Now, the Bible has some interesting things to say about God and weariness. As a matter of fact, it says that God doesn't grow weary. So now we have this con- seeming conflict in the scriptures. In Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 28, it says, Do you not know and have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth, and he never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. So if the Bible says God doesn't grow weary, and yet this passage says that they have wearied God, what's going on here? 
when Isaiah, it's talking about the fact that God's power is limitless. He doesn't get tired as far as sustaining life and keeping things going on his mission, on his purpose. But I think we can all refer to, uh, kind of resonate, I should say, to the way that Malachi uses the word weary here. It's more along the, side, the line of something that a parent feels when their child keeps doing the wrong thing. Now, I have some kids here. Any of you kids ever just keep doing the wrong thing to make your parents mad? You ever done that? You're going, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Hopefully not, but parents, have you ever felt weary of correcting your children over and over and over again? How many of you ever felt that before? Yeah, that's, so you know what Malachi is talking about here. And Malachi says that, that you've wearied God. It's more of this kind of weariness. It's not that God has become weak. It's that he's just like, really? I have to do this again. I mean, honestly, Israel, we're going to go through this one more time. And he said, how have you wearied God with their words? Now, a loving parent doesn't give up, and they don't stop loving just because their children try them and test them. But a loving parent can become weary. Never give up. Never stop loving, but you may become weary. And the Jews had wearied God with their words. And what was their claim? And this is another one I think we resonate with. What was their claim? Their claim was basically, it's not fair. Now, I don't know about you, but that came up in my house a lot when my kids were younger. It's not fair. I mean, isn't that what we all want? Fairness? I remember when um, my boys would split something. If I cut it in half, they would fight over who got the biggest half because otherwise it wasn't fair, you know, if it wasn't exactly even. And so we came up with a great system of fairness. One of them would cut it in half and the other one would get to pick the half that they want. You would be amazed how you can get things down to the tenth of a millimeter. I mean, you could just be like, is it a decimeter? Is that what that is? You right down to that. They get it so perfectly even that they never argued about it being fair again. We want justice. We want fairness. And the Israelites are saying, it's not fair. It's not fair. In verse 17, it says, you have wearied me, the Lord says, with your words. And you ask, how have we wearied you? When you say everyone who does evil is good in the Lord's sight and he's delighted with them. Or else you say, where is the God of justice? Like small children complaining to their parents. The Israelites are complaining to God about the injustices of life or their perspective of the injustices of life. It seems like, God, that the wicked people, you're, you're blessing them and you're doing good things for them. But, but us, your people that you've called by your name, that you've picked, you know, we're, our, our temples just been destroyed and rebuilt. It's a horrible mess. Have you seen it, God? Our homes have been destroyed. The crops are gone. But, but those wicked kings that don't even serve you, that set up pol- tall poles, pillars to their glory, the monuments, to their greatness, you bless them and you allow us to live like this? God, that's not fair. When are you going to keep your promise, God? You promised that you would bless us as a people. You promised that you would give us everything good in this land. You promised that you would send the Messiah and that you would establish your kingdom on this earth, God. Where is your promise? Where is your justice, God? And they're complaining. It seems like if you lived in the post-exile time of the Jews, if it seems like if you were in Malachi's day after the exile, that you could probably feel this way. I mean, everything's a mess, right? It kind of would be like going through a hurricane or a tornado or a flood and seeing everything that you have wiped out. After living for God, or believing that you were in their case, and then seeing everything gone, or your health gone, and then saying, God, where are you? Where's your justice? Where's your favor? But this mindset of where's God's justice and it's not fair, actually, there's another prophet who who was before Malachi, Jeremiah. He prophesied before the exile. You know what he said? Almost the same thing. Jeremiah chapter 12. We're going to look at a lot of verses this morning, so you want to be ready. Jeremiah chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Jeremiah 12, you will be righteous, Lord, even if I bring a case against you. 
yet I wish to contend with you. And that's just great, right? It's like, okay, God, I know that you're great. I know that you're just, but I have, I have a bone to pick with you. I, I've, got some, I've got something I want you to straighten out for me here. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the treacherous live at ease? You planted them and they have taken root. They have grown and produced fruit. You are ever on their lips, but far from their conscience. Jeremiah was a pre-exile prophet. Malachi was a post-exile prophet. So before the Jews were even sent into exile, Jeremiah had the same question for God. God, why do you allow those that, that don't even fear you, whose hearts are far from you, why do you bless them and then allow us to live and struggle? Well, actually, this complaint goes back even further. Because you can go to the Psalm 82, Psalm of Asaph, during the time of David's reign. Psalm 82, verses 1 through 4. It says this. God stands in the divine assembly. He pronounces judgment among the gods. How long will you unjustly, uh, how, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Provide justice for the needy and the fatherless. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and the needy. Save them from the power of the wicked. So Asaph is saying, God, how long are you going to let the, the wicked people live? They're, they're persecuting the poor. They're, they're taking advantage of the people that are disadvantaged. You're just going to let this keep happening? These are the words of Asaph during David's reign, which was the best time, earthly speaking, of the kingdom of God. David re- united all the tribes together and helped them take the promised land and establish this kingdom. And during his reign, Asaph says, how long, God, will you be unjust and allow these bad things to happen? You might even notice at the end of Psalm 82, some of the references go to the end of the passage we're looking at today. Some of the same things that God said he's going to judge down the road. I think the justice of God is something that our society struggles with. I think it's something that we at times all wrestle with, this idea of the justice of God. We have an idea of justice, and we impose that idea on God. So we conceive what justice is, and then we want to know why God doesn't see justice the way that we see justice. If God does not meet our standard of justice, then we perceive God to be unjust. Of course, this almost always points toward the justice that we want God to enact, which is usually justice toward others and mercy toward us, right? Isn't that the way we want it? God, you know, destroy those wicked people over there, but but please show mercy to me. I mean, that's the kind of justice we want, where we get mercy and everybody else doesn't. I think this is what Jonah struggled with. We're going to look at the life of Jonah. Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. He did not want God to show mercy to Nineveh. He wanted God to wipe them all out. And God's like, really? You're still here. (laughs) We want the type of mercy and justice where we get what we think is right, dealt out upon others, and mercy dealt out upon us. And that's exactly what this dispute is about. God, where's the justice? How come you're not blessing us the way you're supposed to and the people that, that are not following you are getting your blessing? This seems wrong. You should be punishing them and you should be blessing us. So God gives his reply, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 that we've already read. I want to read it again because there's a lot in here. We're going to unpack a lot um, because this book, again, we're using Malachi as an overview of all the prophets. So we kind of need to catch some of these ideas here. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. See, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's bleach. He'll be like a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. And the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will please the Lord as it did in days of old, as years gone by. I will come to you in judgment, and I will be ready to witness against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, the widow, the fatherless, 
and against those who deny justice to the resident alien. They do not fear me, says the Lord of armies. God's reply is that he will act as judge and bring justice, but I don't think it's the way the Jews were hoping for. God will bring justice, but it's not quite what they want. There's two messengers, and I want to start by looking at those two messengers. There's two messengers mentioned here. Um, most scholars attribute the first messenger, where he says, I'm going to send a messenger to, and he will clear the way before me in verse 1. Now, most scholars will try that to John the Baptist. And at the end of Malachi, we're going to have another reference to that messenger who will prepare the way of the Lord. And then we're going to see when we go to the Gospels that that's exactly what's spoken about with John the Baptist, that these are quoted regarding John the Baptist. So most scholars will take that first messenger to be John the Baptist. Then he says, the Lord will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in, see he is coming. And your Bible may put a capital M on that messenger. Any of you have that there? Capital M on that second messenger in verse, at the end of verse one or halfway through verse one? It may or may not. That messenger is believed to be the Messiah, the one who will come to the temple. So we as Christians believe that that Messiah is Christ, Jesus, who came, um, born of a virgin. So the Messiah will come. The question is the timing of that in relationship to this passage. I'm going to send a messenger, John the Baptist, but then I'm going to send my messenger to the temple. The Lord will appear in his temple and the messenger will come. Where does that fit into the timeline of God? Well, um, you'll also notice that it says that in verse 2, who can endure the day of his coming? Uh, I think that there's two different schools of thought on this second messenger of when that comes. Some would say that that messenger was when Christ came to this earth as the Messiah. And he did bring judgment, even though he said he came not to judge the world. But his righteousness and his life stands as a judgment and his ability to keep God's command completely and the inability of mankind to do the same naturally brings judgment. And so there are those that believe that this time that's talking about here is when Christ showed up in, in person on earth the first time, born of Mary. But in verse two, there's that phrase, who can withstand on that day? And that day is one of those interesting phrases. It's referring to the day of the Lord. Now, we can't get into the day of the Lord this morning because it's like three sermons all on its own. The day of the Lord is crazy. Uh, we're not going to get into all that. But the day of the Lord can refer to, to several different things. One is the judgment of God, which we, you have a reference of here, which could be like when he judges Babylon, when he judged Egypt. Um, that's the day of the Lord. But there's also the day of the Lord. You know what I'm Dun, 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 the big day of the Lord, which we often refer to in the book of Revelation. And so if you go to Revelation and you read the chapters four, five, and six, um, check out the end of chapter six. And I think you'll really be impressed about the one who's coming. And it says, who can stand before this? And so you have some of the same terminology about the day of the Lord in the end when the Messiah will open up the seals, seven seals with seven different judgments basically on mankind and that day of judgment that will take place. So there could be a double meaning talking about the initial option when, when the Christ came to earth and also the final judgment at the end of days at the final day of the Lord. You could take either stance and you'd probably be okay. Scholars have for years. You could take both stance and you'd probably be even better um, because you, you can be talking about multiple different levels here. So this messenger, actually the word messenger, anybody remember what that word is? David mentioned it in a previous message. Anybody remember what the Hebrew word for messenger is? What is it, David? Malach, or Malachi. So Malachi's name is messenger. So this word messenger here is the same as we had in chapter 1, which is an oracle of the messenger of Malachi. Um, and it's this idea of uh, God is going to send his messenger, and that messenger is going to be specific people. So it could be John the Baptist. It could be, uh, could be Elisha that he's talking about, because that will happen as well. It could be um, the Messiah at the end of days. But the coming Messiah is what they were looking for. 
And that's important to realize that. Remember, we're talking about Jews in exile. And what they're looking for is the coming of the kingdom of David to be established on this earth. So when they said, where's your justice? How long will you hold off? What they're saying is, how come we don't have our kingdom yet? We're, you made a promise. You made a promise to Abraham. You made a promise to Moses. You made a promise to David, the Davidic covenant. that There would always be one of his descendants on the throne. Where's your promise? You made a promise back in Genesis chapter 3 and 15 that after man fell, that you would send the seed of the woman to come and to redeem us. Where's your justice? Where's your promise? How long will we wait? They were looking for a physical king to establish an earthly kingdom. And that's important to remember. Remember, we have Malachi as the last prophet in our Old Testament, right? So when Jesus shows up on earth, what are the Jews looking for? They're looking for a king who will overthrow Rome at that time and establish God's kingdom here on earth again. How long will we wait? God's delay in sending the Messiah was viewed by the Jews as God showing favor to the ungodly and not to them. The promise they clung to were the Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic covenants, and all of them pointing to them ruling and being blessed. Um, And even in this passage, Yahweh says, I'm going to send the messenger of the covenant you delight in. I'm going to send him. I know you're hanging on to the covenants, and I'm going to send the guy that you're waiting for, but you're not going to like it when it happens. Because he says what's going to happen is you're going to be judged when it happens. That's not exactly what we wanted, right? And he gives two examples, refiner's fire and launderer's soap. Have you ever worked with metals and tried to purify metals and smelt them down? Any of you ever seen that process of what that's like? So you take metal with the ore and you heat it up and the dross, is that what they call it? Dross or dross. It's the, the impurities come up to the top and they skim that off. You're trying to get rid of all the impurities by heating it up super hot. And the idea is you want pure gold. You want pure silver. You don't want all the junk in there. God says that the priests are going to be smelted. That sounds painful. The priests will be smelted. They're going to be tried to have all their impurities removed from them so that they can be doing the job God called them to do in the first place. Now, this really sounds horrible. But honestly, I think it shows the mercy of God. You have priests who were set aside by God to do a certain thing and a promise from God that if they didn't do it, he would destroy them. But instead, what you have is God saying, listen, instead of wiping you out, I'm going to refine you and I'm going to restore you back to what you were supposed to be. And it's going to be painful, but you're still here and I'm going to have you doing things that you were created to do in the first place. That's really the mercy of God as much as it is the judgment of God. And we don't always see the judgment of God as part of the mercy of God, but it is. Anytime you judge, anytime you punish, if you're doing it in love and for the benefit of the person, you're acting in mercy. To let everything just slide is not really being loving, nor merciful. The refining process would no doubt be painful but beneficial. Isaiah talks about this. Isaiah chapter 48, verses 9 through 11. One of the other prophets again. I will delay my anger for the sake of my name, and I will restrain myself for your benefit and for my praise so that you will not be destroyed. Look, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction, and I will act for my own sake, indeed my own. For how can I be defiled? I will not give my glory to another. So here's the prophet speaking for God. He says, he says, listen, I've delayed in wiping you out. I'm showing you mercy by refining you. But not like quite like the same as silver. I haven't thrown you into the fire. But through afflictions and through trials, God refines us. Oh, I just made a jump. I just went from the Jews to us. Is that appropriate? I mean, is that okay? This is a specific message from Malachi to the Jews at exile, and, and the book of Elijah is written to the Jews, but I just made an application for us as Christians today. Is that, is that okay? I think so. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7.
1 Peter 1, 6. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time it is necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We rejoice even in the suffering that we have and the trials that we go through, knowing that they refine us like gold is refined, but even more valuable than gold itself, so that God can be praised. And you notice what it says at the revelation of Jesus Christ? So the timeline, the refining fire, preparing us for the day, the day of the Lord, the Lord's return. So that timeline that's yet in the future. I think it is okay to make that application, that God will sometimes allow us to go through trials to refine us, to get rid of the, of the sludge and the garbage in our lives that doesn't need to be there and remind us of what's really important, to get rid of the things that keep us from him so that we can be with him, to get rid of the things that really don't have value so that he can have the most value. The refiner's fire. The second judgment he talks about is the launderer's bleach. Now, I know that there are some kids that don't like to have their faces washed. You ever see that? You go to wash their face and they're like, and they just keep whipping their face back and forth. And so it's like 10 times more work and it hurts them because you're trying to get their, you're trying to wipe their mouth and, like, and you're smearing their nose and everything else. It's just a mess all over the place. What's that? You like getting your face washed? Yeah, well, hopefully you do, right? So when that happens, when you have somebody who doesn't want to get washed, it can be painful washing them. I remember fighting my mom, not wanting to, to, to wash. And some reason, kids don't like taking baths. I don't know what that's about. But I remember fighting that too, right? But when you are willing to just be washed, and when you get clean, it's such a good feeling. Now, some of you are like, well, I don't relate to that, but some of you really like getting your teeth cleaned. You know what I'm talking about? Like when they go in, it's like it's kind of painful when they clean your teeth. But doesn't it feel good when they're all done? How many of you like that? How many of you are like, I'd be okay if I never went to the dentist again? Okay. You guys are strange, but that's all right. This idea of launderer's bleach is that God is going to wash, clean, and get rid of the stains that are in the lives of the Jews. He's going to force them to face their dirtiness and to be washed. And it's going to probably be uncomfortable. It's probably not going to be something they're going to look forward to. See, God says there are certain things that are wrong in the Jews' lives at this time that need to be fixed. And when I read that list, when you read the list at the end of our passage, he talks about sorcerers. He wasn't talking to a group of pagans. He was talking to his people. So apparently, among the Jews, there were groups of people who were practicing sorcery. And he said the adulterers. Now, we talked about that last week when David talked about the, the third dispute um, and this idea of, of being unfaithful in our marital covenants. Um, liars, those who swear falsely. Those who oppress rather than bless workers and widows and orphans, those that are considered weaker in society, that don't have the, the position, that we call them the underserved often uh, in, in our day. And those who act in prejudice, who don't give justice to the foreigner. Oh, you're not one of us. You don't get the privilege of us. That's prejudice. So God says he's going to judge and wash clean from the people these things. Pretty big list. If they're doing these things, it's obvious that they need some washing, right? If we fear God, we'll worship Him and not be involved in sorcery where we're calling up other gods, other demons. If we fear God, we will worship Him and not and be faithful to our marriage covenants and not break our marriage vows. If we fear God, we will act in fairness and we will seek the interests of those that are less fortunate than us. And we would treat everyone as a special creation of God without prejudice. 
Now, I don't know about you, but when I read through that list, it's very easy to see our modern culture in that list. And let me get a little more direct. It's easy to see that in our church cultures, even today, where our churches can be prejudiced, where our churches can favor those that have rather than those that have not, where our churches can ignore God's words about purity and about marriage and just live any way that they want. But again, I think we see the love and the mercy of God here. You see, we all sin. And while I want to start and point fingers to all the people in the churches who are doing those things and say, God, punish them, show me mercy, that's the justice I want, remember? I have to be reminded, like I am in Romans 3.23, that we all have sinned and we all come short of the glory of God. I'm no better. I'm no worse. I'm a sinner in God's eyes. And if you saw your name in the list of offenses, there's still hope. If you did not see yourself in that list of offenses, I can assure you that you and I are still offenders. And I can also assure you that there's still hope. Psalm 103, verses 6 through 13, says this, The Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He revealed his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from him. And as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. I hope you see in that verse I've made a lot of illustrations about parents. Do you see the love of the father that he has compassion on his children? Do you see the justice of God that he has the right to judge, but the mercy of God that he has chosen not to at this time? Do you see that he is willing to extend grace and forgiveness to all those that fear him? And isn't that what Malachi said at the end? When he gave the whole list of offenses and said, these people do this and this and this and this. And the last thing he says is, they don't fear me. Fearing God means accepting him and his justice and his ways. And acknowledging that his ways are not like our ways. Thank God for that or probably none of us would be on this earth at this point. The hope is that those that are willing to fear God can have their transgressions moved as far as the east is from the west. That's pretty far. Like, you can't, like, they don't connect. I think a funnier picture is like a dog chasing his tail. He never quite catches it. Okay, you can't, can't quite get there. I think, the, I think John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, really kind of got this. I think he grabbed a hold of these concepts. And in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, he says this, that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and he's just, there's that word justice, and he's just, to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That bleaching, that cleansing, it's no longer there. But it starts with if we confess. And isn't that what Malachi is calling the Jews and you and me to today? If we will confess that we have not lived up to God's standard. If we will confess that we have not understood God's mercy. Even if we find our lives stained from sin, we can be cleansed and made spotless because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And that brings us to the last question that we want to address this morning. 
What's the purpose of the refining? Why is God doing it? It's to remove impurity, not destroy the person. The goal of laundering is to get rid of stains, not to throw away the garment. The work of the Messiah, the work of Jesus, is to purify us from sin. Not to destroy, but to renew. And when we read about Jesus' relationship to the church, to believers, he refers to it as a marriage covenant, a love relationship. David already knows where I'm going. I'm going to take you to Ephesians chapter 5. David referred to this and alluded to this last week in the message about the Israelites and their, and their marriages. But instead of focusing on the earthly marriage, I want you to hear the message of the relationship of the Messiah with his people. Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, if you just kind of marinate on that set of verses and think through all of the things we've covered in Malachi, there are so many parallels between the marriage covenant of the third dispute, between the being a bride without blemish and going back to the second dispute against the Levites, of the relationship of a bride and a groom and the love that goes back to the first dispute. And then to this last one where we need to be cleansed and purified. If the post-exile Israel understood the real covenant that God has made with his people, that they would be the bride of the Messiah, they probably would not be doubting God's love. They probably wouldn't have been giving defective sacrifices or breaking their covenants or questioning God's justice. The initial dispute was whether or not God still loved Israel, and the resounding answer was, of course he does. And even in this passage, which is calling for justice and judgment on the people of God, there is love evidenced. God will keep his promise. He did send the Messiah, and the Messiah will return again, but God will enact justice on all of mankind. And so the question is, why has God still delayed? God, where is your justice? Why haven't you done what you said you're going to do yet? And I believe we get that answer in 2 Peter chapter 3. You see, we live in times when it appears as though the ungodly prosper. That's our day. And where the godly seem to struggle. Haven't you felt that at times? Why do we still live in a society where the poor and the needy are oppressed and taken advantage of? God, where is your justice? When are you going to take care of this? And 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay. But he's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. In God's love and mercy, he has delayed his final judgment so that more people could come to repentance, to fear him. God says he will do with the priests the refining in other people's lives as well. So us as Gentiles grafted into the family of God. So let me ask you this. Have you... Have you believed that God is unjust? And maybe you haven't phrased it that way, but have you looked around and thought that God has treated you unfairly? That God hasn't kept his promises? I think the message of Malachi to you would be to repent. To repent and say, God, I believed wrong things about you, and I'm sorry. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Have you believed that God favors the evil? Do you really believe that? And yet the Bible says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So in one way I can say, yes, God does favor the evil because he showed his love for us while I, he showed his love for me while I was still his enemy. It appears that God is telling people, stop trying to do his job. I mean, doesn't that make sense? I mean, 
I would make a really bad God, right? One of my favorite scenes in the Avengers is where the Hulk takes Loki and kind of smashes him back and forth and then says, puny God. I mean, I would make a really puny God. But sometimes I want to take over and tell God how to do his job. Where's the justice, God? Where's the, where's the blessings you promised? What's going on here? How come you're allowing these things to happen? And God is saying, listen, how about if you stop trying to do my job and you focused on what I've got you to do? I have a mission for you. What if you focused on that instead? So I'm going to leave you with one more prophet as we get ready to close in prayer. And that's, that's um, Micah. Prophet Micah, chapter 6. I think he sums up this whole section really well in a short set of verses. Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Now listen to what the Lord is saying. Rise and plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your complaint. Listen to the Lord's lawsuit, you mountains and enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people and he will argue it against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? Or how have I wearied you? I love that I use that same word. How have I wearied you? Testify against me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from that place of slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam ahead of you. My people remember what King Balak of Moab proposed and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him and what happened from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal so that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. So just kind of pause there for a summary. He's basically covered the entire wilderness wanderings and where uh, even where, um, where Balak um, of Moab wants to curse the Israelites and Balaam was not a godly man. God would not allow Balaam to do it. And God blessed Israel three times instead of cursing them three times. God says, listen, I pulled you out of slavery. Christian, listen, God pulled you out of slavery, the slavery of sin. Saying, listen, I've carried you all this way and I brought you through all these troubles and I did not allow you to be destroyed by your enemies. Christian, that's still a message for us today. So verse 6, so what should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with seven-year-old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the offering of my body, offering of my body for my own sin? Who is the one person who was asked to do that? Do you remember? Abraham, give Isaac on the altar. Of course, God spared Isaac, but he's taking us back to even that promise of Abraham here. But verse 8 is where Micah sums up everything. Mankind, he has told you, each of you, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. Your version may read a little different. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God, it may read. So God says, listen, let me tell you what you should focus on. Instead of trying to tell me how to do my job, instead of leveling arguments and complaints against God and going, God, when are you going to do your job? God says, how about if we focus on doing the job he's put us here for? What if we loved justice? And, made, and by justice, it's not just about um, you did this wrong, you get punished. You did this right, you get rewarded. It's also about protecting those that are the widow and the oppressed and the orphan. What if we focused on that instead of focusing on complaining against God? What if we were more interested in mercy for our enemies rather than God wiping them out? Remember, we want justice for them. We want punishment for them and mercy for us. What if we lived with the same type of mercy God shows us? Toward others. Didn't Jesus tell us that? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless them. So what if we did justly, 
love mercy, and what if we walked humbly with God instead of in arrogance telling God what he needs to do? But we fear the Lord the way he's called us to. That's what we are called to in this fourth dispute that God has. And listen, we like to complain. We like to complain about our society. We like to complain about God. But that's not really what God wants from us. What God wants from us is to trust him and to fear him and to represent him on this earth. He has not wiped us out because he loves us and he continues to offer to cleanse us and to purify us so that we can be used for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your mercy. It's so easy for us, Father, to complain or to cry out of the injustices of this life, the the hardships that we have, the struggles that we face, whether they are uh, with our health or our culture or our bosses or our society. But Father, we know that we are still here because of your mercy. And that while we are here, the most important thing for us to do is to humble ourselves before you and not to just levy complaints against you. So remind us of why we are here. Father, if you have refined and redeemed us, remind us of the importance of sharing your love with others so that they can be refined and redeemed. Father, if we have listed off all the complaints and all the challenges that the Jews were facing, we know that we're no different. Forgive us for our transgressions. Purify us. Refine us through whatever you need to do to refine us so that we can be instruments of your praise so that we can be the tools that you use to declare your glory to the ends of the earth. And so that we can look forward to that great and glorious day of the Lord. And hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Father, remind us daily of your grace and teach us to walk in it, we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for being with us this morning. I thought we would be shorter now that we're in the building, but apparently not. Yeah, I know you were, David. I wasn't. So I, I'm trying to work on it. I really am. But there's so much in this book. So um, hopefully you can obviously uh, cancel the live stream stuff if it's still going. But uh, anybody who's here, do you have any um, questions or comments about Malachi? We haven't really had a chance for some interaction. So does anybody have any questions or thoughts or comments that David can answer for them about, the, about Malachi? No? Malachi, the Italian prophet, yes. Yes, the only Italian prophet we can claim, yeah. I don't even know how you'd pronounce it in Hebrew. Thank you.